Well, I don't know about you, I don't know if you have a bucket list or not, but on my bucket list, uh, one of the things that's pretty high up there, actually, is going to visit all the Hall of Fames. I want to go see all of them, football, basketball, baseball. Uh, I think it would be fantastic to get to see those. I could spend days in there just reading and looking and seeing all those things. Uh, I've been to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. I've been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, but I've, I've not gotten to go to the other ones. I, I've actually got to meet some Hall of Famers, believe it or not. I have, I have pictures, so you can evidence there's me and Nolan Ryan right there, and um, he asked to take a picture with me, so I said yes, and uh, actually, no, this is at Round Rock Express Christmas party, um, and then I got to meet Pete Rose, who was actually my, my favorite player growing up right there, um, and so I got to meet him, and I'm taller than him. That was kind of fun, but, uh, but, but he was fantastic. You can take that off, but uh, I got to meet, actually, the lead guitarist for Journey, Neil Sean. I got to meet him, and he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so that's kind of fun. So I've had the chance to meet some of these, but you know, God has a Hall of Fame, too, and he filled it up in Hebrews chapter 11 is where he kind of did, but that's not where we're going to be, so don't turn there yet. I'm just going to read one verse, but uh, in that that chapter, he unpacks a whole lot of people's stories in there of Hall of Famers. The good news is this. I'm going to get to meet every one of those. Like, I'm going to get to shake all their hands when I get to heaven and all that, and I'm excited about that. But today, we're going to talk about one of the Hall of Famers from Hebrews 11. I'll read the verse, and then we're going to go to Judges, where we're actually going to be. It says in Hebrews 11:32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. So today we're going to talk about the one that you're most familiar with in that whole list, I'm sure, is Jephthah, which I don't even know how to say his name. I looked it up all these different ways. and had these. So we're just going to call him Jeff. That'll make it easier for me and for you. And so we'll just go with Judge Jeff is how that's going to be there uh, for that. And, and now my next question for you is this. If you were to write down three things about yourself, what would they be? whether it's your profile on LinkedIn or your bio on Instagram, what, I, what, what are the three things that you would put about yourself? And there's lots of choices out there. You can do it based on jobs you've had. You can do it based on relationships or family or different things. Like for me, you could say, well, Alan, he's husband, dad, and son. Like that would be an easy thing to say. Other people might say bald, rhino, pastor. Like, like there's three things like that. Other people may sing, say things you're not allowed to say in church about me. But, um, but there's three things on all this stuff. This guy, Jeff, gets three things written about him in Scripture. This is how we, in, we get introduced to him with three things to know about him. So if you have your Bible, Judges chapter 11, and then we're going to go to chapter 10, then we're going to come back to chapter 11. Like, we're going to jump around a little bit in the book of Judges to be able to un understand this guy, Jeff, and what he is. Judges 11, starting in verse 1, it says this. Uh, Jeff, Jephthah, but I'm going to call him Jeff. Jeff the Gideonite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. There's the three things we get about him. These are the three identifying markers about him that got put in Scripture. You are a mighty warrior. Like, yeah, that's good. That's a good resume builder right there. Mighty warrior. Your dad is Gilead. Why is that important? Well, he's a Gileadite. Did you see that? His dad's name is the name of the town. Like, his dad founded it or his grandpa founded it. Like, this is family there. They're prominent family in this town. That could be good or bad, I guess. And then the third one, his mom is a prostitute. Now, that's a little disappointing because it costs him. He didn't have a choice in that. It wasn't like he decided. His dad made a choice. He's the result of that choice. So how did it affect him? Let's go on to verse 2. Gilead, 
being uh, Jeff's dad, Gilead, his wife, also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jeff away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. We're going to judge you for that. We're going to hold that against you. Dad may have protected you while you were growing up, but he's dead. The inheritance now is being divvied up, and you don't get any. Matter of fact, we don't even want you here. Get out. You're not welcome here anymore. What did he do to deserve that? I don't know if you've ever been in a spot where you get blamed for what someone else did. And how to gonna... And here's Jeff in that situation. He's dr- driven away and gets no inheritance on top of that in the family that he grew up in. Still his dad. And this is what he's dealing with. Then it says this. So Jeff fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Notice this. He didn't go to Tob and go find a bunch of scoundrels to hang out with. A bunch of scoundrels found him. There was something different about him. They were drawn to him. He was able to develop leadership skills, influence. Probably this is where he became a good warrior because he was involved in combat. He had to fight his way to survive. He had to fight his way to win. He had to fight his way to get things. And this is where it's happening is over in Tob right now. So there's our introduction to the guy that's going to circle back in just a minute. Spoiler alert, he's the hero. But we're going to look at his journey as we go through this. So let's go backwards, turn back a page to Judges chapter 10. And this is where we'll, we'll kind of hear what got him to come back. So Judges 10, we're going to start in verse 6. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you are familiar with the book of Judges, this is a regular thing for them. Matter of fact, if you count it up, this is the eighth time in the book of Judges that it says the Israelites did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. See, your kids aren't the first one to make the same mistake seven times in a row. Like, we t- are you serious? You did this again? Like, how many times have we said that to our kids? How many times did our parents say it to us? Really? You didn't learn your lesson the first seven times? This has to happen again? So give some grace to your kids as they go through this. This is the eighth time. Again, the Israelites said, evil in the eyes of the Lord. They serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, these are the local gods. These are the the gods that the locals had developed. These were the ones they kind of went to every time the first seven times. Like that's their default God when they were tired of the true God and they would turn their back on him, these are the ones they would go to, the Baals and the Asherahs. And that's what they would do. But look at this, there's an and. They serve the Baals and the Asherahs and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. Now, these are foreign gods. This is a much deeper level of perversion. The things that these gods did are stories that I shouldn't tell in church the brutality, the the grotesqueness of what they did. If you want to go research it and study it, you can. You can look up the names of those gods. I went into that. It's not worth bringing into the sermon, but I'll tell you it was disgusting. It was horrific. It's worse than the Holocaust. Like, this was a terrible depth that they had gone to, deeper than they'd ever gone before. First seven times, I guess it's a a shallow sinning. This is a deeper sinning, and this is what they're doing in this. So the, the gods of the Philistines and all these others, these foreign gods, Here's God's response. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. God gets angry. And and we sometimes think being angry is a sin. It's not. Anger is an emotion that God gave us. It helps us. 
but in your anger do not sin, is what scripture tells us. That doesn't justify you sinning just because something else made you angry. Like, hear that. There's a big difference in that. God is angry, but in his anger, he doesn't sin. He gives consequences. Look, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, two of which gods they were serving, the the worst ones that they had actually done before. Like, God had given them into the Ammonites before and the Philistines before. Now he gave it to both of them. Like, you want to go that far? You want to go that far with your rejection of me? I'll put both of them on you. You'll get some double trouble. God's frustrated, man. He is done with this. So he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, verse 8, who that year shattered and crushed them. Shattered and crushed them. I can only imagine physically, spiritually, emotionally. I can imagine the brokenness that came over them because of the oppression of these two countries that God had given permission to hurt them, to squash them. Like This is what's happening. Thinking, how can a good God do this? He loves us so much he won't let us stay in the sin the way it is. He'll turn us over to it and we'll suffer the consequences of it. And that's what he's doing here in this moment. And he, he gave them, they shattered, shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed the Israelites. So that first year was so bad and so hard and so challenging that it took them 17 more years before they could even get up. It says for 18 years, they oppressed the Israelites. They couldn't even cry out for help. They were so smothered. It was so bad. And I'm telling you, I know know stories. I've been through things that are so hard that you don't even want to get up. You just want to give up. And this was their lot in life. For 18 years, this happened. Now, it's the result of their choices, but this is what happened. So here we go. For 18 years, they oppressed the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Great distress. I don't know that it could get any worse. This is where they are. Verse 10. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Finally, they come to their senses. Finally, they go, God, help us. We're sorry. Help us. So what is God going to do? Send a deliverer like he's done the last seven times. That's just who he is. Seven times he's forgiven them. Seven times he gives them a deliverer. So that's what he's going to do this time, right? Wrong. Look at verse 11. The Lord replied, and count with me as we go. When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonites, the Amalekites, and the Maonites. I always want to say mayonnaise, but the Maonites. Uh, that's seven. Do you see where I, that's the eighth time they've done evil? He goes, when you, all these people, oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? Guys, do you remember? This is, this is the eighth time. Do you remember those seven other times that I bailed you out? Do you remember those seven other times I sent someone to rescue you? Do you remember that? Have you forgotten your history books? Are you not teaching this generation to generation about the power of God and what he's done to save us and rescue us? Have you forgotten this, guys? He asked that question, but he says this, verse 13. But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. What? Really? Like, is this the God that we learn about in the Bible? Is this the God that's loving and kind and, and, and all the forgiving? Like, 
Can he really say that? Like, can he get away with that? That doesn't seem fair to me, right? But absolutely he can. I will no longer save you, verse 14. I'll give you an option. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. You want them so bad? Ask them for help. I've tried. I've offered. I've showed you seven times over the history of your nation. And I don't even count going back when rescue them out of Egypt. Like, do you not remember what I've done? And yet you continue to do this, and now you want me to rescue you. You made this bed. You get to lie in it. Go ask them for help. That just seems crazy to me. But let me tell you something. God is not impressed with hypocritical tears. God is not impressed with fake I'm sorry's. See, there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Remorse and regret are not the same as repentance. Sometimes we're sorry that we did it, and sometimes we're sorry that we got caught. And God read their hearts to understand, hey, bail us out, and eventually we'll go back to what we were doing anyway. We just need to get out of this hard time. God recognizes that their worldly sorrow is just, I regret doing it. And how many times have I done that? God, I'm sorry I did it. I regret doing it. You know, I feel really bad about it. But repentance causes us to action. Words are cheap. Action speaks. God didn't forgive us by saying, hey, you, I forgive you down there. He took action and demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, he sent Jesus to die, not for our sin, but in our place because of our sin. That's what he did. He demonstrated that love for us. And now he's telling these guys, I've done this seven times. I need to see true brokenness. I need to see godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. And that's a hard conversation to have. Here we go, verse 15. So God says this, go let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. More talk. Verse 16, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. Then they took action. God said, I'm not impressed with your fake tears. I'm not impressed with you like playing a get out of jail free card. This isn't a game. This is life. And you're making a mockery of me with the choices that you're making. And now you're saying, I'm sorry, help me out. He says, I need to see some brokenness. I need to see godly sorrow. And they said, okay. And they got rid of every, God, every idol and God that they had set up that wasn't the one true God. And then God responded at the end of verse uh, 16. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. You think it felt good to God to do that? I've, I've, I've never met a parent that enjoys punishing their kids. I've never met a parent that says, man, I hope they mess up so I can whoop them. I've never, I've never, it hurts to discipline someone you love. It hurts. And God said, I can no longer bear their misery. I can't. They have now repented. They've turned from what they were doing and they've thrown it away. Now I can step in and do something. Now I can help with this moment. Psalm 51, 17 says, God has a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive them and heal their land. Like that's God's desperation for that. Let me explain this to you. God's grace is greater than his anger. I don't know who needs to hear that today. 
Because I don't know if you're walking around thinking God's mad at you for what you've done or mad at you because of what your family did or mad at you because of whatever. God's grace is greater than his anger. He did not want to. And when they finally broke, so did he. And he said, I cannot bear their misery any longer. I'm going to do something about it. So verse 17. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. This is not a question. A lot of times we read that as a question. Hey, who's going to take the lead? Whoever will take the lead gets to be the big dog. You're the boss. You're the leader. Who will do this? Who will take the lead on all of this? Who will step up? No one did. But in Judges 11, we, we pick up the story again, but, but no one did. See, here's the thing about that is, is what an opportunity for God to bring back one of his own that had been disowned. He was disowned by his family. He was never disowned by God. God brought back one of his own to help the people that had disowned him. Isn't that like God to do that? Like it's so fun to see him do that. Never forget who you belong to. You may have been rejected by someone or something or some job or whatever. That does not define you. Never forget who you belong to. Jeff belonged to God his whole life, even when he was in Tob, even when he was hanging out with scoundrels. He was God's man. And God said, I'm going to take one that's been disowned, and I'm going to own him. So then we jump to Judges 11, verse 4. We kind of pick up the story here. It says, sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jeph from the land of Tob. Now, don't lose this little nugget right here. The elders of Gilead went. Who do you think the elders of this town were? The Gilead family had, this is probably his brothers. I think it's awesome. Uncles, cousins thrown in there. These are the elders of the town. These are the leaders of the town. We're in trouble. We got to go talk to Jeff. I don't want to talk to Jeff. Do you remember what we did to Jeff? Yeah, I remember what we did to Jeff. He's our only hope, man. Oh my gosh, I don't, you talk. I don't want to talk, you talk. I can just imagine the conversation as they're walking over there, right? And they travel over to the top and they said, verse six, come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Because he's such a godly man, he's going to respond with an overrounding yes. Japheth said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? <laughs> yeah. You didn't want me before. You want me now, huh? Say please. I need you to say pretty please. Like, I don't know what was going on in his head. I would be vengeful probably in that moment. Like, you sorry dog what you did to me. But, but he in this moment says, why, why do you want me? You didn't want me before. You want me now, huh? The elders, again, family of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Like, hey, man, let's let bygones be bygones, right? That's in the past. That's not who we are. Yeah, that's in your past, but I've been living it ever since. Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jeff answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Will I really get to do it, or are you using me? Like, he's suspicious, as he should be. 
Verse 10, the elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. I, okay, that's good. You said it. You dropped God's name. I guess that's okay. Verse 11, so Jeff went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. They kept their word now. They he took them back and said, before we get into this fight, let's go ahead and crown me. Let's go ahead and give me the leadership. Let's go ahead and make that happen right there. Which reminds us this, opposition leads to opportunity. Opposition leads to opportunity. So often we think when someone opposes us, something bad is going to happen. There's a bad result at the end of it. Nothing good from, can come from opposition. Opportunity comes from opposition. Opportunity puts us in places where we learn things that we don't even know we need to learn that prepare us for something we don't even know is coming. See, God has it all worked out. We have to submit to him. And that's what Jeff was doing, and that's what the people of Gilead came back to get this. So then he takes over command in verse 12, and he uses the skills that he had gotten. So listen, when Jeff sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you have attacked my country? Interesting, he's using mine and not theirs. He walked back into where he was. This journey home brought him back home. My country, my land, my people, he said all this. The king of the Ammonites answered Jeff's messages. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. Well, we're here at the negotiating table. Like, all right, I've sent a message to you. You've sent a message back. Now Jeff's going to send another message over to him, and we're going to start bargaining, right? He's going to use this wisdom that he has. It says, verse 14, uh, Jeff sent back messengers to the Ammonite king. So he's responding. And what he did, we're not going to read all those verses because we don't have time. You can read them later because they're right there coming up. But he writes this, basically gives a historical and biblical context to what he was talking about. Listen, man, you're wrong talked about being brought up out of Egypt. God gave us this land. Like he gave the whole story, biblically, factual, accurate story to replace the lies that this king had been believing and thought was rightfully his stuff. So he's responding to all of that and laying it out there. And he's giving them all of this. He is smart, he is wise, and he is combat trained. No other judge previous to this had that combination of skills. They had wisdom, they had smarts, they had combat trend. There was different ones that did different things. He was the whole package in this deal. And he starts with negotiation. He starts peaceably with him. And he begins having a conversation with him. The king responds once, he responds back. Then we jump down to, uh, to verse 28 in Judges 11. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jeff sent him. He paid no attention to it. He blew him off. And unfortunately, it's true in our climate today. It's been true since biblical times. When words fail, the sword comes out. When words fail, the sword takes over. Well, his combat training now is going to kick in for this. So look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jeff. Now, up until this point, don't miss this. Up until this point, God had been kind of a silent partner in this. He's, he's more passive than he is aggressive in this moment right here as he's doing his negotiations. Now, God is involved in all of them, and you can read those verses, and he talks about God's authority and who God is and what he did. Like, they know who the God that he serves is. So he has them there. He's not ignoring him. Jeff is not ignoring him. He's using it, but God has not inserted his own power into it yet. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jeff. Now God takes an active role, and victory is assured. 
God steps in and puts his spirit all over Jeff. Now, we've been learning about that the last few weeks. We will for the next few weeks after this about the Holy Spirit. Man, keep coming to these messages that Mark and Brett are bringing. They're fantastic. But here's a moment where the Spirit of the Lord came on Jeff. So what does he do? He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Let's go, boys. Time to go win. He's not talking anymore. He's not listening to reason. He doesn't understand truth. Let's go show him truth. And the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and he has power to lead them, and he gathers the troops, and let's go. We're going to go take over and just going to be great. And then something happens in verse 30. It says, and Jeff made a vow to the Lord. I don't understand why. Why would you make a vow to the Lord when victory is already guaranteed? It's easy for me to judge him. And that's a dumb move. I know the end of the story. So it's easy to judge him when we know the end of the story. But how many times have I made deals with God? God, I promise if you just get me out of this, I'll never miss church again. I'll have a quiet time every day. I'll memorize the whole New Testament. Like, we make all these incredibly outlandish vows to God to get what we want in that moment, to guarantee something that's already been guaranteed. I don't know why, but I can't judge him because I'm the same way. But look at his vow. Jeff made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. That's the vow I'm going to make. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know why he was thinking it. He wanted to win. He wanted to guarantee victory. The Spirit of the Lord had already come on him. Victory was guaranteed. He wasn't there yet. So here we go. Verse 32. Then Jeff went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Listen to this. He devastated 20 towns. He went 20 and 0. He's a Cy Young winner. He won the Super Bowl. Pick whatever you sports analogy you want. He went undefeated. 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Victory was guaranteed. 20 of them. 20 in a row. Bam, 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 bam. He won 20 in a row. Then he goes home. Verse 34. When Jeff returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of the timbrels. I don't know what he's thinking. Is he thinking, well, that dumb chicken that wakes me up every day is going to come out? That sorry dog. I, I, don't, I don't know what he's thinking. But he sure saw what happened, that his daughter came out dancing. She's celebrating the victory that she heard her dad led. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh, no, my daughter. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. It's interesting he says, I am devastated, because that's exactly what he had done to the 20 towns. He devastated 20 towns. I don't know if it's the same level of devastation, but the realization hit him. What have I done? What have I done? And she's like, Dad, I'm so happy to see you. You won. It's great. Daughter, you have no idea. And he tells her, this is what I did. This is the vow that I made. She responds in verse 36. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. 
Dad, this was big. Our country's been in a really bad place. 18 years. All my friends, man, they're just so broken and crushed, and their parents and their grandparents, and it's been so bad for 18 years, and you brought victory because of God. We have to honor him. We have to do it, Dad. Like, what a great response she has. But, verse 37, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. So she goes and cries with her friends and has all this time. So the question we have to ask is this. Did, did he really sacrifice her and light her on fire and burn her up? Like, did that really happen? I, I, maybe. I wasn't there. I don't have documented history to, to tell me whether it did or not. But what I do have is God's word that guides me into what truth is. God's word says, do not commit murder. I can't imagine God saying, yeah, in order to keep your vow, you have to sin. I, I can't imagine that being what it was. If you remember Abraham taking his son up, it says, go and sacrifice your son. Remember he said that to him, Genesis 22, go and sacrifice your son. And a three-day journey took him to the top of this mountain, and he throws his son on the altar, wraps him up with rope. He's got a knife in the air about to kill him, and God says, whoa, stop, stop. And there's a ram over in the thicket, just stuck over there. And they pull that out, and it takes the place of his son. And there's a sacrifice that's there. What I believe to be true, because God is who he says he is, and he doesn't go against his word, he's not going to ask Jeff to kill his daughter on an altar. What he's going to say is, I'm sacrificing you to the Lord. You'll go work at the tabernacle all the days of your life, and you'll never get married. So I, I don't believe there was actual death of her. I think it was the death of her ability to get married and have a kid, and that's pretty devastating to someone that's there, uh, that's in that. And so what? So what's the, what's the big deal about this story? What are we supposed to learn out of it for us in 2023? Right, let's, let's consider four things that I want you to consider. Number one is this. You are not disqualified or less than because of your family or your past. You're not disqualified or less than. Jeff was disowned, and God said, I will never not own you. I will never disown you. You will be here, and you will be used for good. God took someone that a, a city said well, you were disowned and brought him back and said, you are mine, and you will be the redemption of this city. So he brought him back there. So one, you're not disqualified or less than because of your family or your past. Number two, God's grace is greater than his anger. It's, it's greater than that. His arm of, of love and justice and mercy is much more than his, his arm of, of wrath. And, and so he desires to love us, but he desires for us to love him too. And so in this moment, you need to know God's grace is greater than his anger. Number three, opportunity, uh, opposition leads to opportunity. And we face all kinds of opposition in our life. We face all kinds of situations that we feel opposed. Some are little, some are big. I understand that. Everybody has their own story. One, one it's not a huge one, but it's a pretty significant one. When I first got here to Central 100 years ago, um, I was going over to Round Rock High School uh, to try to have lunch with students. And so I go over there, and I go to Dr. Russell's office, and I'm like, hey, man, um, I'd like to have lunch on campus. It's a closed campus. We don't let people on campus. But I'm with you. Like, I'm, the, I'm fighting for these kids, too. Like, I want to be on here and encourage them. I can't let you on here. I'm like, can I, can I ask why on that? And he opened his drawer, and he pulled out his Bible. I'm a Christian, too. And he put his Bible back in and closed the door, drawer. And he said, if I let you on, I have to let every group on. No, no, you don't. Yeah, if I let you on, then the KKK can come on, and all these others can come. They can't. You don't have to do that. Play favorites. I'll be your favorite. Like, we could... <laughs> 
He said, Alan, I'm sorry. It's a closed campus. We're not going to do that. Yes, sir. I walked away. A month or so later, we'll see you at the poll, which is a gathering before school. Students gather to pray for their school and all that. And this particular see you at the poll morning, it was pouring down rain. Like, it is just pouring down rain, and it's before school, and I'm standing out there with an umbrella, and all the students are up under the covered area, and it's supposed to start, and they're kind of under there, and, and I'm like, I'm watching, and, and one by one, they start coming out, and there's probably 300 kids. Like, it is a big group, and they come out there and gather around the flagpole, and they just start praying, and I'm standing off to the side. You know, we're supposed to be there to support but not lead. It's a student-led event, and, and so I'm listening to them pray, and as I'm listening to them, Dr. Russell walks out of the school. And he's standing there under the covering, just looking at him and kind of leaning in. Right as he did that, I heard a student, and I don't even know who it was, I heard a student start praying for Dr. Russell. Just praying for him, they'd give him wisdom, that he would be safe, that he would lead well, all the things, right? And they're just praying for Dr. Russell. And I saw him turn around and walk back into the school. And I thought, okay, we're about to get in trouble. But uh, he called me later that afternoon and said, can you come over here? I said, yeah. He said, I was out there this morning, I heard those kids I said, I I saw you out there, Dr. Russell. He goes, here's the rules if you're going to come on campus. The power of the kids praying opened a door for youth pastors to go. Now it's closed again, but uh, since COVID, but then that's fine. But, But opposition leads to opportunity. And the opportunity to pray for someone who had opposed youth pastors being on there. It seems simple and little, but it was pretty significant for us youth pastors at that time to be able to go and, and love those kids and meet with them and do all of that. Opportunity, uh, opposition leads to opportunity. And then the last one is this. Your choices will affect the ones you love the most, so be careful what you vow. Be careful what you vow. Your vow is a serious deal, whether it's your marriage vows, uh, vows to the Lord, they're a serious deal. And so be careful what, what you vow because it'll hurt the ones that you love the most. Mm-hmm.